Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It's December the 27th. It's bright and early in San Francisco on the west coast of the United States, if you want to imagine that in your map. And on the map, uh, quite far east of here, uh, it's about five in the afternoon in London. Unfortunately, as 2021 drags to a close, COVID continues to dominate the headlines. Um, That's all we seem to hear about these days. And I think one of the legacies of COVID is it's taught us or encouraged us to think in terms of maps. We've all seen this map many, many times, uh, the map of the United States where COVID is bad, where it's worse, where it's less bad. Um, It's forcing us, for better or worse, to visualize disease, visualize death, not just in the United States, but around the world. We can see from this map, for people watching this, that the United States is very dark colored, which I'm guessing uh, means that um, there are more people with COVID, more people dying here. We even have maps from the New York Times of death, which the United States tragically uh, outranks everyone, including Brazil, Mexico, Russia, and even India. Um, this idea of maps and geography has been a, a, a theme in our, in our show. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had my old friend, Singapore-based geostrategic thinker, Parag Khanna on the show, talking about humanity's ever-changing map. But the, the Pope of geography, the authority on maps, is my guest today. He's the author of four books about geography. Many of you will know him from his Prisoners of Geography, 10 maps that explained everything about the world or explain everything about the world. It was a a number one in the UK for a couple of years. Uh, He's written four books on uh, geography, maps, geopolitics. The second is a flag worth dying for, the power and politics of national, national symbols. The third one is the age of walls, how Barriers Between Nations Are Changing Our World. And his latest geography book is just out, The Power of Geography, 10 Maps That Reveal the Future of the World. Many of you will know him. His name is Tim Marshall. And I'm thrilled that Tim is joining us from uh, Buckinghamshire. Used to be a West London boy, originally from Leeds. um, And uh, the author, as I said, of this new book, The Power of Geography, Tim, welcome. Thanks very much for the invitation. I, uh, I envy you the sunshine, assuming it is uh, a sunny No, it's, well, you know that old song, Tim, it never rains in California, but it pours. It's been pouring here for days. And the other um, one, Twain's one, you'll know. The coldest winter I ever spent was a summer in San Francisco. Yeah, yeah. And the winters aren't so warm either. Uh Tim, uh, curious on on the COVID front, uh, is there anything about my intro that was actually true? Has COVID forced us to think in terms of maps more or are we oblivious to geography, as oblivious as we've ever been? Do we always need guys like you to remind us of the importance of geography? I don't think we're oblivious to it. I think it's part and parcel of our daily lives uh, often. You know, we have mental maps, images, you know, is how we orientate ourselves. 
Um, so no, I, I don't think there's anything you said and that was wrong. And also uh, I was struck when you put that map up of the states um, and the hotspots. I mean, my, immediately my eye was, was obviously drawn to the deeper red. And mm. then the next thought process is, oh, right, so hang on a minute. Oh yeah, those are the big cities um, you know, on the East Coast. I think I'm looking at places like Chicago. Uh, right, but it, it changes because sometimes the red is somewhere else. Sometimes it's in the mm. deep south. Sometimes it's. But, but else. I, I think they're brilliant, Andrew, because they they're a snapshot and they're visual. And I'm a great believer in visuals. Um, you know, this, I've got this theory that um, visuals are where the key is to explaining things. You know, and it's the first thing we did by drawing on cave walls. And then we went through a very, very long period of the written word. And, you know, we have come back a lot more relatively new in, in humanity's history, uh, back to the visuals of the modern age. Tim, how did you become this authority on geography? Your day job for many years was as the was a foreign correspondent for Sky Television. So um, you had your feet quite literally on the ground. How did you think up this series and, and why for you is geography so important in making sense of the world? I, um, you're very kind, but I don't think I am an authority on it. I think what I hope... Well, you're a best-selling author and you've done as much yeah. as anyone to popularise the yes. idea of maps in books. Yes, but 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 I'm not an academic. I'm not a professor. Well, I, yeah, and I meant that in a compliment. If you were an academic yes. or a professor, you wouldn't be <laughs> well, on the show, Tim, and I wouldn't be being so polite to you. This is, but this is the point. It's the accessibility. Um, and I think that is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm lucky enough to be able to write uh, in an accessible manner. Uh, and often the, the writings are sort of uh, conjure up uh, visuals as well. Sorry, but to answer the question, uh, it's the experience as a foreign correspondent, and, and, and sadly, all the conflicts that I covered, going all the way back to Bosnia and then through to, you know, Croatia and Macedonia and Libya and Iraq and Afghanistan and all the rest of them. Um, I learned fairly early on that if you didn't understand the terrain, the geography, the demographics, the population centres what was where you just could not make sense of the the, the fighting and the, and the conflicts and so very early on in their career i used to just inject bits and bobs you know the, 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 they say it's mindless violence it's not it's very well thought out this violence here is in order to achieve that aim there you know and they're not they're not difficult concepts uh, really and it's quite easy to explain stuff when i was in uh, syria uh, for the first few years of the war there I used to always say when, for example, it was reported that Assad had lost half of the country. And I would say, well, he's lost half of the sand. Because then we'd put up a graphic. This mm. is the territory he's lost. It's mostly sand. Here's the one motorway in the entire country. It's the backbone of the country or all the urban areas. He still has 80% of the population. Again, easy concepts. And so when I quit, uh, I just thought this is something that always seems to strike a chord. So I just started Prisoners of Geography explaining the limitations of a country uh, by its geography, what it can and can't do, and how its leaders are constrained by that. And it, again, it just absolutely seemed to hit a chord. I've been very lucky. Tim, you've got a map behind you. Um, 
And uh, speaking to you from the West Coast of the United States, I can't help noticing that America's missing. What's happened to America, Tim? And I have the... It's over there somewhere. It's over there somewhere. And one of the interesting things about your book, and, and the book is really interesting on many different levels, is there's one map missing or several maps missing from the book, 10 maps that reveal the future of the world. There are no maps of the United States because I'm based in the US. I'm America centric. We've done lots of shows about American geography and decline and American relations with its own geography. Why no America? Because it was in Prisoners of Geography, which was about the mostly the bigger players. You know, there's a chapter in that book on, on USA, Russia, China, India, Pakistan, the big players, the big geopolitical players. This follow-up mostly goes down a level to second-tier nations, the UK, Greece, Turkey, uh, Ethiopia, and then a region of the Sahel. Right. We're going to get to each of the maps. But um, I'm curious, one of my favorite uh, interviews I did, I don't know if it was this year or last year, was with the travel writer Tom Zollner. He writes a lot about geography. As I said, his book um, is The National Road, and you should look at it if you haven't seen uh, if you if you haven't read it. Mm-hmm. He had a very profound view, I think, on geography. He said the American concept of geography has undergone a powerful shift. Place is less important than it has ever been to those who can free themselves from it, yet more important to those who aren't able to leave it. I'm, of course, talking to you from San Francisco on the coast. I'm part of that mobile global elite. We live in San Francisco, but you can find me at one airport lounge or another in a hopefully a pre-COVID or post-COVID world. How has, in broad terms, the the our, our relationship to geography changed according to our socioeconomic status? Oh well, yes, very much. I mean, it was true perhaps for hundreds of years that, that only the wealthy um, could mostly could, could travel, certainly um, just because they w- wished to. Uh, and long distance trade was carried out by relatively few people. Now that quote you just put up, I, I agree with it in broad brush terms. And I think it's very important that he, he put the second part of it in, yet more important to those who aren't able to leave. Right, it's the everywheres and the nowheres. Yes, the everywhere is the, the Dunk, uh, David Goodhue, British. Yeah, who's been David Goodhart, who's been Goodhart. who's an old friend and been on the show several right. times. Yes, I know David. Um, but I think that 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 quote is perhaps overstated. I mean, look, it's, it's from a brilliant travel writer. I'm not decrying him or his work at all. But I, I do think that it's a bit overstated this idea that we're losing our sense of of place. To this day, even in the modern industrialized countries, most people live and work within 100 miles of where they were born. That's the vast majority of people still. And I think that's going to continue. And if you're talking about 8 billion of us, you know, it's easily the vast majority of us still live and work very close to where we were born. So I I think it's actually overstated this idea that we're leaving uh, this, this, this inherent uh, attachment to our, to our roots behind. I don't think we are. Tim, uh, subtitle of your book is 10 Maps That Reveal the Future of Our World. So you're 
throwing your hat in the ring as a futurist. One of my favorite interviews this year was with New York Times writer Timothy Egan wrote a book, A Pilgrimage to Eternity. It was about a, a walk he did between Canterbury and Rome to recreate the Middle Ages. Yes. Um, what's the role of history in uh, your work and in, in this book, The Power of Geography? To understand the future of the world, do we need to be better historians? Yes, better historians and, and better geographers. Um, so, I, yeah, I can now fully answer the question you answered as before, which I foolishly didn't answer properly. I do have a formula. You know, I, I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not Hemingway or... Um, you look like Hemingway with the beard. Yeah, well, I, I am channeling my inner, my inner Ernest at the, at the Christmas. Um, it is a formula. I start, if it's, let's say I've got a chapter on uh, Turkey. I start with its parameters, its geography, its terrain. You know, right, it's got a sea here. It's got mountains at the back of it to the right. That right across the top bit, the Anatolian plain is flat, but very high ground. Um, it's a fantastic bit of real estate, especially when you get to the left of it. Mm. That is the east-west cross route for centuries. So I, you know, I detail the topography and then you start on the history because I'm not a determinist. You know, we, we can uh, circumvent some of uh, the prison. We can bend the bars of the prison of geography up to a point and only up to a point. But if you haven't got that basis of the geography, if you haven't understood it, you haven't understood on a very basic level that the Himalayas are between India and China, and that is the main reason they've never properly fought each other because they probably would have done if the Himalayas weren't there. I mean, that's a very basic point. Only then do I go to the history because some of what happens absolutely flows from that history. If you're talking about Turkey, once they'd um, flooded in onto the, and over the mountains to the right from the Middle East uh, and come down from the Black Sea, conquered the Anatolian plain. You put forces at the back of it to guard those mountains. You concentrate your power uh, in the rich area around what is now Istanbul. And that's the fantastic trading bit. And you're pretty safe because A, you've shut the back door of the mountains and B, it's the best part of several hundred miles across the very rough terrain of the top uh, of Turkey. So you're actually feeling in uh, quite a good, good place. Once you've consolidated, through your geography and history, you then start going up through the Maritza River Valley up into um, parts of the Balkans, and then you end up, uh, I mean, if you go past Bulgaria there, and there's the, this, this river valley that leads up, well, you end up at Vienna, and the Turks ended up at the gates of Vienna. So you do the geography, you then build on that foundation with the history, which has flowed partially from the geography, and then you hit the current affairs of what's happening right now. And if you followed this geography and history at that point, this, these current affairs become so much more easy to understand. The best example I have by a country mile is understanding Russia and Putin at the moment, looking westwards to the flat ground in front of them, which was the direction Napoleon came and the direction Hitler came and the Germans in 1914 and the Poles and, and the Swedes before them. When you know that both terrain and history, What's going on at the moment in Ukraine between Russia and Ukraine is a lot more easy to understand. 
Very briefly, Tim, I, I want to get to details of the book. We'll do that after the first half of the show and talk about each of, of your 10 maps. But as I said, this is the, the fourth book in the series. You began with Prisoners of Geography, then A Flag Worth Dying For, The Age of Walls, and now The Power of Geography. Um, what's the narrative in terms of those four books? You compared um, Prisoners of Geography and The Power of Geography, said one deals with great powers like the United States, second with second tiers. Well, what about the, the second and third books? How do they fit into this broader narrative of flag worth dying for and the age of walls? I think all four of them, the narrative flowing through it is, is identity, nationalism, and, and the politics of place. Um, I mean, obviously the flag book, what do you mean? it's not really about flags. Um, I mean, I do go through, you know, several dozen flags about why they are the color that they are, and that's tied up with their history. But it's, it is about identity. Uh, and I think that that's probably true of, of all four books. Um, certainly Age of Walls. I mean, you know, there's been this explosion of, of barrier building. I mean, hardly anybody knows that India has completely fenced off the entirety of Bangladesh, 3,000 kilometers. You know, Trump's war got all the publicity, but in fact, there's these walls going up left, right and center between Turkey and Greece, Bulgaria and Greece, Syria and Turkey, on and on around the globe. And that, of course, is tied up absolutely with nationalism and, and, and sense of identity in place. And if we go fast forward to the, the, the new book, Power of Geography, these um, second tier nations, you know, what is going on in the UK at the moment, uh, post Brexit, uh, and again, this sense of British um, English identity, uh, or if you go Greece and Turkey, you know, they identify each other almost in opposition to each other. Right. So that, that, that would be the common thread. Well, I'm sure you've made many friends in Turkey, Tim, by calling them a second tier nation as well as the UK. We're going to, we are talking to the eminent geographer, popular geographer, best-selling geographer, Tim Marshall, the author of uh, another spectacularly successful and interesting book, The Power of Geography. 10 maps that reveal the future of our world. When we come back after the break, I want to talk about those 10 maps. So um, stay, stay tuned, everyone, if you want to hear Tim's 10 maps that will change the future of the world. We'll be back in about 60 seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this Keenon show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it, but I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keenon show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them. And if you want to access uh, all the podcasts together, you can go to my LitHub page um, in their podcast section, which is dedicated to all the interviews. Uh, if you're into watching this, as opposed to simply listening, um, if you follow me on Twitter at AJ Keen. You can watch these shows live. 
Uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but LitHub is. And on their LitHub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the LitHub YouTube page. So whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now back to Keynote. We are back with Tim Marshall, the author of The Power of Geography, 10 Maps That Reveal the Future of the World. Let's get into it, Tim. We've been fiddling around on the edges. What are these 10 maps? Um, let's begin uh, with the most second tier of second tier powers, Australia. Mm. What's interesting about Australia? Oh, how long have you got? Got about a minute on each, probably. Yeah, you got about, we got about 90 seconds on each. <laughs> Maybe we'll skip over the UK because it's so boring. But... Yeah. Um, um, it was in the middle of nowhere for so long, and now it's actually in the center of the world. That's one of the things that's interesting about it. I mean, if you've got a map on your desk, usually the UK and Europe is bang center, but that just reflects the time that the maps were first drawn up. The real center of the world has shifted across Indo-Pacific, and there is this hinge nation between those two oceans. Most of its population See that right-hand side where you've got Brisbane, Sydney. Yeah, and for those people just watching, uh, listening, you need to watch sorry, because yeah. we have a nice big map of Australia on, on, the, on, on the screen. Sorry, 85% of Australia's population live in that little arc on one side of that massive continent. Yeah, the pocket in the south uh, southwest of the country. There's no water anywhere else. Southeast, and, yeah. And, and flowing from that is... They can't grow a big population, they can't have a big navy, but they need one because they're so big. So they need a friend, used to be us, the Brits. They jumped us in 1941 for very obvious reasons, gone with the Americans. And this year, they've clearly made their decision vis-a-vis -vis China. They're sticking with the Americans. That's why, you know, I didn't write the 10 maps that um, are going to be the destiny of the world. That was the second uh, uh, bit underneath the, the title of the book, but but each chapter is about a place I think will be in the news over the next few decades. Well, let's move on to uh, uh, your your second chapter, a country that I've never been to, and it's one of the countries I'd love to go. Actually, mm -hmm. is Iran. I know you've done as a foreign correspondent, you, you've spent some time in Iran. Um, Iran is clearly a map that reveals the future of the world. What, but what does Iran tell us about the future rather than the past, Tim? Well, so the nationalism is, is still key because one of the few things that holds the place together as well as the Ayatollah's oppression uh, is this sense of, of, of nationhood. It's a very old nation. I mean, I think it's only about 60% of them are actually Persians. Um, there are different nationalities, but they have made a good fist of holding that country together. I, it's going to be in the news because I don't think as long as the Ayatollahs are in charge, the competition with Saudi Arabia will go away. I note yesterday it looks like Saudi Arabia is developing ballistic. Yeah, and they're, they're like, we're, we're going to move with Saudi as your third chapter, yeah. so we'll talk about Saudi. So that really one, of the, um, one of the things that's always interesting uh, to me about Iran is its demographics. The youth of Iran 
Yeah. Uh, how important is that in terms of the map of the future? Well, it, it means they're on borrowed. The ayatollahs are on borrowed time because we've heard that now for thirty years, Tim. Uh, yes, but exactly. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to be next year or the year after. In fact, in the book, I say they they absolutely still have a grip on society. But every time ten children are born, I think that grip loosens because there is no way that six of those ten are going to grow up in this modern world. I know you have your issues with the internet. So do I. But in that interconnected world, when they can see the outside world, where they are a bit younger, they're modern, they will not last the Ayatollahs. And there will be, hopefully, a peaceful transition. More likely, there will be another revolution. Does Iran, um, uh, Tim, have a lot in common with the United States? They, they seem to be run by similarly gerontocratic regimes, the Ayatollahs <laughs> and Nancy Pelosi and Joe Biden and Donald Trump, they're all so old and out of touch. Do they have much yeah. in common? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if you've seen it, but Mr. Your, your president appears not to have heard this um, keep on Brandon uh, phrase because somebody said it to him on a phone <laughs> and he, he repeated it. Anyway. Um, he's so old, I think he's lost his hearing. I'm a little, I mean, we're going off topic, but I'm a little concerned that when he has off days, they're pretty off. But anyway, no, I don't. I don't. <laughs> Does he ever have on days, Tim? The similarities between them are um, that they're both actually quite well-educated societies uh, in relation to many other countries. I don't think, yes, of course, they are both ruled by people that really perhaps should be thinking about retiring. Um, but no, I, I, there are not that many similarities between the United States. For all its faults, it remains a democracy. And for all uh, its plus points, Iran remains a, uh, what I call a democratic dictatorship. Well, a theocracy. And, and another theocratic authoritarian regime is uh, Saudi, which is making yeah. a lot of news recently. They seem to be investing in PR. They're getting a lot of good press. I'm not quite sure why. Mm. What's, yeah, well, why, why, why is the map of Saudi, huge map, but mostly desert, why is it important, Tim, for the future, to make sense of the future? Um, because of its relationship with Iran, which is probably going to continue to be um, quite feisty. Uh, yeah. They fear fighting each other. Um, but also because it is this incredibly rich place, which does have a big influence in quite a lot of the world. But the real reason is it's fascinating that and here's how everything is connected. The Americans fracked. They're almost energy self-sufficient, even as everybody's going to try and wean themselves off the only thing that Saudi has to sell, oil and gas. So during the next few decades, uh, during this transition, if the Saudis do not diversify, they will die. There was 2 million of them when they discovered all this stuff under the ground. There's now 28 million of them. How on earth are they going to feed 28 million people if nobody's buying what they've got. So it's a fascinating place to look at and watch as the Americans very, very slowly lose interest in it. Very, very slowly wean themselves and others wean themselves off of what the Saudis have to, have to sell. How does Saudi turn this corner actually quite quickly? You know, two or three decades is actually quite quick to, to completely rearrange your economy and indeed your, your population. So it's just it's it's a real really interesting place to watch 
Um, and when the king dies and this new guy's in charge, this rather impetuous young crown prince, it'll be fascinating. As an aside, I wouldn't rule out within five years of him coming to power, Saudi makes peace with Israel. Uh, and can Saudi sort of turn itself into a, gig a gigantic version of Qatar or the Emirates? I mean, can it become just a, a desert version mm. of Dubai? What, what happens to the Persian Gulf if, if, if Saudi does genuinely reform itself? Oh, it, 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 can, it can be Dubai, but it's so, so difficult. I mean, Dubai, the native people of Dubai are, are quite cohesive, as are the people of Qatar. I mean, they're actually outnumbered by foreign workers. But, and Saudi Arabia is much less cohesive. It, it, it's, it hasn't had a sense of itself for very long. It's named after a family. People on the coasts and the Shia minority are not always very happy that they're living in a place that is named after one family from one region. So I, I think they're, they're going to struggle to hold it together. And there's this inherent tension between the uh, Wahhabi mullahs that used to have almost a 50% share of the power and the House of Saud, which has a 50% political share of the power, the House of Saud is now dominating. The Wahhabis have not finished yet. Again, you know, like, like I said, it's just one of those countries which bears really watching because of the influence it has, certainly on every country that's in its region. But as we wean ourselves off, off oil, um, they are a template about perhaps what to do, or perhaps what not to do. You mentioned Dubai. I mean, they've got these uh, plans for this city called Neom, Project 2030. Yeah, I've, this is in Saudi, right? Yeah, yeah. And it, it, if it works, and they're behind schedule and over budget, inevitably, if it works, it's the first futuristic city. You know, it's planned and designed that there'll be nothing but uh, driverless cars. Um, robots will be delivered. Is it possible that uh, Newcastle United Football Club will be re relocated to Saudi Arabia in the not well, too distant future? They'll be playing pre-season friendlies there. I mean, that is a bit of um, sports washing, isn't it? Because it's interesting, you know, you don't, you don't just, uh, I don't know, hold an art exhibition anymore or build the Guggenheim um, Museum Gallery, uh, which has happened in Abu Dhabi. I've been there. It's sensational. No, now you get a sports team as well. And you put yourselves on the map through having these massive libraries, these massive uh, uh, build, buildings that, that the world looks at. And you buy, yeah, you buy sports teams and you, you it's soft power. And yeah, and, and soft power, this is a good segue to our, our next map, uh, the United Kingdom. Um, which has become a giant franchise, I mean, sort of extended franchise for, for football clubs. It seems about the only thing of value left in the country. That's, been, simply, uh, that's simply not true. No? no? Well, you're talking to me from... But uh, in all seriousness, Tim, um, did, um, you know, the, 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 the Saudi acquisition of Newcastle got a very bad press, but is it any worse, Saudis to buy Newcastle, than the... Um, the uh, the the acquisition uh, of Manchester City within no. by a Gulf consortium or no. or the Russian acquisition of Chelsea Football Club. Um, uh, it's no worse than 
um, Qatar Bangalore City. Um, but it is worse than a private individual buying Chelsea because that's not the state. In fact, far from it, that particular individual. But, this, but the money to buy Newcastle United came from the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund. Um, you know, it's a direct connection to the state. Um, and Newcastle United will be part of the um, kick homophobia out of football. And there's a real tension there when that country would still hang you for being a uh, practicing homosexual uh, and would not allow any pro uh, LGBT activity. So there's a, there's a tension between being owned by basically um, a government. But football fans, most of them, no, as long as they, as long as they win the league, it'll be all right. Now, Tim, you're famously a home and away supporter of Leeds United. So maybe we'll do another show specifically about football. Uh, you said that I was wrong on the UK when I described it as a giant sports franchise. Why else is the United Kingdom important? Why did you include their map in your 10 maps of the world that will shape the future? Um, because they're not done yet. Uh, you know, I mean, I'm not nationalistic and particularly patriotic. Um, I'm not a little Englander. I don't like little Englanders. But, you know, th there is this this tendency, especially amongst the intellectual class, amongst the English, to do the place down, to sneer at it, to sort of think, oh, oh, oh dear. You know, they love X, Y, and Z about France. They love X, Y, and Z about Italy because that's where they have their second houses. But they look down their noses at the UK and I find it really irritating because, you know, I mean, France has got for it. I mean, they, they talk about this fascistic rain sodden island that I live on, but they got their second house in France which has um, more, than, more than a third of its voters prepared to vote for the extreme right wing, almost fascist. But they, they love France. So do I. I used to live there as a correspondent there. So I'll come back to why this place isn't so bad. Soft power, it remains an absolute world leader. Its exports in the music industry are incredible. Yeah, I just feel, I just finished watching the, or I'm in the middle of the Beatles, uh, Peter Jackson's Beatles <laughs> yeah. documentary, which was, I don't know if you've seen it, it's remarkable. I've seen snatches of it, it's amazing. When Paul McCartney suddenly comes up with, uh, I forget which song it was, but he's not, you know, he, he just actually invents it there. Um, I think two of the top 10 universities in the, um, in the, in the world are still in the UK. Education system, why do you think people from all over the world are desperate to get here, both at, at a street level and at an educational level. Some of the best science still comes out of here. Next year, the UK will launch um, its own um, space program. Uh, I, I mean, honestly, there is a long list, and I'm not saying it's better than anywhere else. I'm just saying that I, I get I find it intensely irritating when. <laughs> It's and, and, and so are you writing this chapter very much in a post-Brexit context? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm so, to, so are you suggesting that Brexit isn't the catastrophe that progressives yeah. imagine it? Yeah. I, I voted Remain. I, you know, I haven't got a problem. I, I, I'm a big fan of the raison d'etre of the European Union. I voted Remain. But it doesn't mean, just because I'm a Remainer, that I look down my nose at anyone that voted Brexit. I can put, you know, loads of my friends voted Brexit. In fact, I, I was almost certain it was going to be uh, a leave vote. And of course, the intellectual class sometimes, which I mix with, would sort of absolutely <laughs> uh, 
how could that? No, don't be so stupid. Of course, you hold your nose when you when you go to their cocktail parties in Islington. Well, I don't happily. Um, no, it's precisely because I don't. But I do go to Leeds games. I knew I was pretty sure <laughs> we're leaving. How does uh, yeah, how does the Leeds fan base break down when it comes to Brexit? Leeds was fifty. Leeds as a city was fifty fifty. Um, the vote came in. Yorkshire, I think, slightly tilted into um, uh, uh, Leave territory. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was a very close. So, what about but, the, the the sort of the, the Boris propaganda that Britain can become the Singapore of the twenty first century? There's already a Singapore, obviously. Um, I mean, why have the UK and not Singapore as a map? Because Singapore is a fascinating country too. Yeah, but it's just there's less. I mean, it's you know, it's a city state of less geography to talk about. I'll try to finish on the UK. Um, you said whether it's a disaster. No, it's it's bumpy. I wish it hadn't happened. But we were told there would be mass unemployment. We were promised this. We were told that inflation would go through the roof. We were told this year that you better get your Christmas groceries in. Right, because otherwise you'd starve. Because all the shelves are <laughs> going to be empty. And it's all not being right. And every single time they're all wrong, it doesn't make them reflect, well, actually, things aren't as bad as we said. No, they just keep going about how awful this place is. It is, <laughs> it is like George Orwell said, you know, the, 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 the English intellectual class cannot help themselves. No matter how stupid they look, they keep loathing this, this country. They have no idea that most people just think they're idiots. But that's the thing about intellectuals. They often are. Well, speaking of intellectuals, Tim, we've done a lot of highly intellectual shows about Greece, a lot of it about the Greece of antiquity. I'm a, a huge fan of Greece on lots of levels, historically, mm. culturally, and in a contemporary sense. What's interesting about Greece, which is uh, certainly a, a, a small country without many natural resources, doesn't have oil, doesn't have a lot of industry. Yeah. Why is the map of Greece so interesting for the future of the world? Well, firstly, um, that it's a great example of how you can actually work stuff out just by looking at the map. And if you had a topograph topographical map, you'll see that, oh my God, it's quite a big country, but there's nowhere to live. Because, you know, it's really steep. Yeah, it's rocky. Very, very rugged. You can't grow a big population. There's only two parts of the country you can actually grow crops. And if you can't grow crops, you can't build a big population. It's not a coincidence. So those are, is that the area around Athens and Thessalonica? Yes, that's exactly where it is. And it's not a surprise that up north of Thessalonica is where um, Alexander the Great came from, because he was the first bloke that could came from an area where they could grow enough crops. So, you know, it's a great example for things like that. And then history flows from that. Bringing us right up to date, um, it's, it's in the news because if Turkey leaves NATO, Greece becomes the most important country on uh, NATO's southeastern flank. It's in the news because a shed load, as we say in English, a shed load of gas and oil has been found in the Aegean. It's also in the news because it faces off against Turkey. And Turkey is not finished yet with, with its concept of what should and shouldn't be Turkish territory. And of course, this oil and gas that's been found in the Aegean, the Turks are saying half of that is ours. And the Greeks are saying, if you take a look at a map and see where the lines of the borders are drawn, it's not. So, that, you know, that tension is not going to go away. So I, I just thought this was a, a, good, um, a good chapter to put in. And also, I, Greece is just yeah so interesting because of its amazing past.
Yeah, and you, um, you, as I said, your day job for many years was as a, a war correspondent for Sky. You spent a lot of time in that era. Is Greece, would you include Greece in the Balkans? I mean, you spent a lot of time yeah. in Yugoslav yeah. civil wars, the, post, the, the wars in post-Yugoslavia. Is it possible that... Um, that, that Greece can, we'll, we'll talk about Turkey in a minute, and you seem to be presenting Greece as an East-looking country, but on the Western Front, things are tr complicated too. Greece is, is it, it, it does, it looks north into Europe for its modern culture, but it still really retains an, an Eastern feel about it. And, you know, that goes back to its history when, you know, what is now Turkey, uh, Constantinople was a, a Greek-speaking um, city, which is now Istanbul. Um, I think it is part of the Balkans. Again, if you look at a topographical map, you'll see an incredible mountain range that comes down across from Bulgaria, across into Albania. Mm. And that, that northern part of Greece is incredibly mountainous, which has always cut it off from the West Europeans and their culture. And, but the, the land borders, um, when the further uh, east you get, um, puts them up into Bulgaria, up into places like... Yeah, Mexico. in terms of the history of maps, um, I don't know if you note it in the book, but certainly this area of the world was determined by some movements of the pen by Stalin and Churchill and had things worked out differently, the whole history of Greece could have been entirely different, much more like Bulgaria or Macedonia or Albania. So the, the dependence on the great powers, we, we did a show also on the Greek War of Independence, the beginning of the 19th century, which of course was defined and determined by great powers. But, but that was based on geography, sorry, Those decisions that were based on geography, right. you know, the, the Russians coming down through the bombs. Oh, absolutely. No, I'm not denying the importance. I mean, great powers are only interested for geographical reasons, not for, I mean, the British pre presented the Greek civil war in moral terms, but of course, yeah. as always, as the perfidious, perfidious Albion were pursuing their own interests and, and using morality to justify it. Yeah. So absolutely, yeah. So we, we got to move on, Tim, to, yeah. to Turkey, which seems to me to be your... If there is one map that somehow captures the, the, the inspiration and the passion of Tim Marshall, it's yeah. Turkey. Is that fair? You've mentioned it several times and we haven't even had a, a section on Turkey yet. Yeah, I wouldn't put it higher than um, I think the, the chapter that captured my imagination the most in, in the new book is, is space. But you know, Turkey, it's just well, we'll move on to space at the end. It's this absolute crossroads. You know, I mean, when you put the map up, that bit across is think of it as a super highway. And it yeah. has been for thousands of years. And, you know, everybody's come through there. And then you look at the two seas, each side of it. Uh, you know, when I, I mentioned earlier, if you're going to go up through uh, just to the left of Bulgaria, whether it's a river valley all the way to the gates of, of uh, Vienna, it's just got this incredible, incredibly rich. Were you surprised, Tim, by Erzegan, by his success, by his political long, longevity? You mentioned the authoritarian, the mm -hmm. gerontocratic authoritarians in in um, in Iran and the more youthful ones in Saudi. How do you make sense of Erdogan's success? He's tapped into the latent conservatism of, of the country. Um, and again, it's this thing that people often mistake a capital city for a country. And Istanbul is modern, vibrant, relatively liberal. 
um, looks absolutely to Europe as well as uh, eastwards. But the rest, much of the rest of the country doesn't and, and, and is very Islamic, um, takes its faith incredibly seriously, quite pious and, and small c conservative. And he tapped into that brilliantly. I mean, it, it, the man has been brilliant. I think the skids are under him. I, I'm always reluctant to say, you know, borrowed time because I, I remember when back in the um, in the early 90s, wise beards used to stroke them and say, so down, it won't last more than a couple of years. And then 10 years later, they're still saying it. Well, you do know uh, the work of the Turkish journalist Eche Temelkuran. Um, she's written some wonderful, she's in exile now in uh, Istanbul, very popular newspaper columnist. She's been on the show several times. She's written a book about how to lose a country as Turkey as the sort of model for authoritarianism. Yeah, oh, so it is a, a fascinating, we, can, exactly. we need to move on. We, we could yeah. do a show, uh, Tim, on each country. And the one chapter in the book that I was particularly interested in, because I never really, I had heard of it, but I didn't really know where it was, was the Sahel uh, area of, um, of, of, of North Africa, the countries of the Sahel. H- how did you choose this? And very briefly explain why this map, which is um, an international map, it crosses many different countries of North Africa, why it's so interesting and important. Because a lot of things come together here. Um, the Sahelian countries, Sahel in Arabic means shoreline, and it's considered that the Sahara Desert is the sea of sand, and then there's the shoreline before you get into the greenery of the central part of Africa. But climate change has pushed uh, a lot of the, the problems that, that are, are there, the, the, the poverty, the lack of water, the disease. I'm afraid there are insurrections in every single one of the countries. It goes from coast to coast right across the continent of Africa. Um, the jihadists are there in force. The French are there in Mali, 4,000 combat troops. The British have got 400 combat troops down there. People mostly don't know that. So an awful lot of things came together about poverty, the history of colonialism, nationalism, jihadism, uh, and, and, and climate change. And it all comes together in this awful, terrible... I, I really enjoyed that chapter, actually. I think it, I'm not suggesting titles or subjects for future books, but maybe a whole book from Tim Marshall on Africa would be very interesting. You uh, you also include, um, as a standalone African country, yeah. although it's made up of many different peoples, Ethiopia. How did you choose Ethiopia as the one African country? Because um, it's a regional powerhouse in the Horn of Africa and will remain so as long as it holds together, because there is a terrible civil war going on there, because of the Grand Ethiopian Dam. The Blue Nile starts in, in the highlands in the middle of there, of, of um, Great yeah. Valley. And then they've managed to dam it with this incredible dam. And 21st century technology is bending the bars of the prison because the, you know, it was rubbish for trade because it falls so quickly. You know, you can't trade on yeah. the waterfall. But the knock-on effect, well, two knock-on effects. One, they hope to put free electricity into every house in Ethiopia and transform 110 million people's lives. But downstream, upstream rather, in Egypt, they are incredibly worried that Ethiopia's hand will be on the tap of the Nile to the extent that they've actually threatened war about it. Right, and and, and everything's connected because uh, if you look at this map, which just takes Ethiopia, it's not that far away from Saudi or even from 
from Iran. No, so this, this is a new sort of Balkan. Yeah, I just think that the, yeah, people look at it as an African country, and it is, but I think it's almost a Middle Eastern country in its sort of in its relationship just across the Red Sea. And one country that used to be a Middle Eastern country, and again, we use these terms very, as Brits very carefully, I guess, uh, is Spain, which got into the book. I was actually surprised to see Spain in the book. Um, what's so interesting about Spain? Again, the geography uh, hooked me. It is a giant fortress. As you approach it from just about any angle, you come up against towering cliffs. Um, the, the, the central plain at the top uh, is, is also fascinating, how it grew organically. The fact that it's framed, you know, the reason Spain is the shape it is, it's got mountains at the top when you go to France, a river if you're going to go to Portugal, and sea on every other side. Amazing history. But then if you bring it up to the 21st century, it's a crucial country vis-a-vis um, -vis the uh, movement of peoples as people mm. come up from North Africa, trying to get into Western Europe. Not you know, Most of them don't want to stay in Spain. It's also a, a crucial country in NATO. It's so underestimated. Um, and is it a model or a warning about different peoples living together, peoples who generally don't particularly like each other? Well, Spain's actually done quite well. I mean, it, 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 it has its issues with racism. Where doesn't Well, I, I meant more on the, the, the Catalonian front. Uh, well, they, yes, and again, well, that's another reason why I put it in, because, because I wanted to explain how the geography of, of Spain has actually meant it's been very difficult to knit themselves together. You know, you, you've got the Basques, you've got the Catalonians, those are the, the two big, you've got the, got the Galicians, and it, it's because of the geography they haven't been able to knit themselves together the way that, let's say, you know, 12 different English tribes knitted themselves together to eventually become England. And it's the geography that's held them back. And it's the geography that defines Catalonia, why they speak Catalonian, the defined area of Catalonia, why it's a rich area, the great port in Barcelona, et cetera, et cetera. And so it was, it was an interesting one. And also it allows you then to use it as an example to then quickly say there's these other regions of Europe which also some of them want out of the nation state to create their own. In, in a funny way, uh, Spain maybe was the future. I'm not sure if it still is, but but that's another again, another subject for another day, Tim. I began this by suggesting you hadn't included in America in, in, in any of your maps, but you kind of do at the end because uh, the final map is space. Uh, here we have, I, I stole a couple of, images of space from the internet, one full of stars, the others just some sort of rather just dark space. Uh, why I found a, a piece from Vox, 40 maps that explain outer space, but you just have one map in your book. What, what's so interesting about outer space? Why is that the future of the world? Because it's here and now, it's not science fiction anymore, because I wanted to conceptualize it as us having a border, a physical border, you know, just as a country has a border, well, we, we have this border, low Earth orbit, the atmosphere. And we need to think of that as a border. And then we think the bit outside of it has different areas. And if you control low Earth orbit, you would control all the satellites. If you control the libration points, um, you can control uh, large parts of the gateway out to these stars. If uh, you 
are ahead of the game, you're the one that will be able to colonize the moon and dig whatever. But isn't this an American, or is it certainly an American Chinese colonial race? Uh, I mean, you can't really talk about space, at least in America, without mentioning Bezos and Musk, and then the Chinese yeah. are also very engaged in this space exploration. Yeah. Those three are, the Russians, Chinese, and, and Americans are way, way out in front of everybody else. The Americans with a commercial aspect as well, which is really fascinating. I mean, for example, they've already found a meteorite, massive meteorite, with more uh, rare earth, falsely named rare earth materials on it than is the American economy is worth. I mean, I was saying in the book, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to 2060 when they found a planet made of gold and, you know, gold's gone down to two cents a a pound. Um, it, it is without question an area of great power competition. It already is, and it will be. And I'm just hoping it will also be an area of great power cooperation. You know, there was incredible cooperation between the Soviets and the Americans in the 60s and 70s. There is the International Space Station. So I hope we go forward uh, in, in that spirit. But there's already the Artemis Accords, which has divvied up the um, spheres of influence. They don't use that term, but it's in there of the moon um, and it didn't include russia and china so that you know why would they abide by these treaties and the gateways to it are very similar to what we've seen over the past two or three hundred years of the gateways of trade uh, on earth whether it's the the strait of hormuz or the malacca strait or the Suez canal you know we're going to have similar things out there so i just thought it was it's time to look at it um, in a geopolitical sense. I mean, there is this new discipline called astropolitics. Um, and I just think we're going to have to get used to it just being another area that we compete and cooperate in just as we do on Earth. Well, Tim Marshall's new book, The Power of Geography, 10 Maps That Reveal the Future of the World, is classic Marshall, provocative, but also fair. Tim has also has a, a blog, uh, a podcast, The What and the Why, Extremes Are Easy, The Center is Hard. I think this is a book from the hard center. Congratulations, Tim, on the book. It's already a bestseller in the UK. I'm sure it will be one in the US, like all your other books. Um, what else should people be reading, Tim, in these dark last days of 2021 not probably the best year um of the of our lives or, or most of our lives uh, are there particular books in addition to yours that you think people well, should be reading in general read upon russian and chinese history because when you and their geography because when you know that you just understand them more you know you cannot understand it by looking in at them you have to look at it from inside out we've done some shows on on russia and china which books in particular well, I, I, I mean, this is the, this is this is by a proper expert. Um, that, that that's I'm very taken with the new map. Um, uh, Daniel Jurgen, who's yeah. an authority also on oil and on 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 the Middle East, he's been on the show. Well, um, that is good company to be in, and he is a proper expert. Uh, it's it's a terrific book. It's just a bit also. You see, he's got that knack which not enough genuine experts, academics, and professors have, and that's being able to speak and write in human. Uh, I wish more of them did. Well, Tim Marshall, the author of The Power of Geography, 10 Maps That Reveal the Future of the World. Congratulations on the book. Happy New Year, Tim. Um, I hope your football club, Leeds United, stay up because we need big clubs, even if they're not very good. Um, 
And uh, we'd love to have you back on the show in the not too distant future to talk more about particularly Brexit. I, I'm, I'm very amused with your take on that because it's a breath of fresh air to have. You are an intellectual. You probably would admit it, but have an intellectual slag off other UK intellectuals in such an articulating, convincing way. <laughs> so thanks so much, Tim. Cheers. Thanks very much.